Welcome to the Littlestown Chapel podcast. When you get an opportunity, check us out on the web at littlestownchapel.org. Now, we hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Scott Morgan. I was at the grocery store the other day trying to find something. Have you ever, those of you that go to the grocery store a lot, you can probably find stuff easily. But I was having a, the dickens of a time trying to find something. And the lady who was working there saw me looking there, looking stupid, standing in the aisle like, which, which aisle is it? Where am I going to find this? And she says, sir, do you need some help finding something? I said, yes. And I told her what I was looking for, and she said, I'll take you to it. Why in the world do they put peanut butter over in the bakery section? But they do at that store. So I went right over, and there was my jar of peanut butter that I was longing for. Somebody took me to it to help me find it. That's what we're saying at Christmas time when it comes to having a relationship with God. We're saying God clothed himself with human flesh and came to us so we now can come to him. That's really what we're talking about during this season. And that's what we're going to specifically focus on today. Of all the names of Jesus that you read about in the Bible, perhaps the one that's most significant when it comes to what was happening at Christmas and maybe most meaningful to you or maybe me, it's the name Emmanuel. And I just kind of noticed how people spell it different ways, sometimes with an E and sometimes with an I. I don't really know what that's all about. I have no idea. But we're going to spell it with an I today in this, this uh, lesson. But in the, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 7, verse 14, it says that a virgin will conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Matthew takes that name, applies it to the Messiah because he was born of a virgin, the Virgin Mary, and he's called Emmanuel. And Matthew goes further and says, I'm going to tell you what Emmanuel means. All you non-Hebrew people, I want you to know what this name means because names have meanings and significance. The name Emmanuel means God with us. And because at Christmas we're celebrating Emmanuel, that God is with us, we can say that he's nearer than you think. And because he's nearer than you think, life is different. Life is full. Life is better. Life is, has meaning and purpose because he's nearer than you think. And we want to focus today specifically on how this came about, but not only the how, why it came about. And so during Advent, the Sundays of Advent, we'll be looking at passages of Scripture that unpack the idea of why there's a Christmas, why God came to earth, why Jesus was born. That's what we're going to unload. We're not going to so much focus on uh, you know, the, the who, the what, the where, the when, the details of the Christmas story, but we want to just unearth a little more what it means. Why did he come and what's it all about? One passage of scripture that's very significant for us to look at is found in the Gospel of John, chapter 1. And you can take your Bible and start turning there and, and uh, get ready to, to walk through it with me in just a few moments. It's on page 886 is where we'll be reading, page 886, if you'd like to use the Bible from the chair in front of you. But in this passage, John talks about Christmas, but in a way that's very different than the other gospel writers. Because in, in, in Matthew's gospel, we've got the angel appearing to Joseph and telling Joseph, don't divorce Mary, even though you feel like you've got a right to because she's pregnant and you're not the father. And he says to Joseph, look, stay with Mary, take her as your wife. 
she's bearing my son, the, the, excuse me, the son of God, not the angel's son, the son of God, and, and, and he's going to be the savior and, and free his people from their sins. And, and then in chapter two, we've got the wise men coming to visit Jesus after his birth. In Luke's gospel, we've got the angel appearing to Mary and saying to Mary, hey, guess what? There's a big surprise. God's chosen you to be the mother of the Messiah. Isn't that great? And Mary's scared to death, but says, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me as you say. Because she realizes, as the angel says, nothing's impossible with God. He can make this happen. And in chapter 2, we see a different set of visitors coming to visit the newborn Christ. It's not the wise men, it's the shepherds. And so we have that uh, story told very clearly of the birth of Christ. John's gospel talks about the birth of Christ also, but in a very different way. He doesn't focus on shepherds and wise men and stars and gifts and things like that and stables. He doesn't focus on that. He talks about that the, the, the birth of Jesus was a journey, not the journey Joseph and Mary took from, you know, Nazareth and north of Israel, south to Bethlehem, not that journey, but the journey of Jesus leaving the throne room of God and coming to the human race and being born as a human being, being clothed with flesh. The early Christians, when they celebrated Advent, they were actually celebrating not Christmas as much as it was the Feast of the Incarnation. Incarnation is, an, uh, is a Latin word that's been anglicized to say the enfleshment, the, the clothing with flesh, how, how God would take human flesh and clothe himself with that and become a human being and yet being fully divine, fully full deity, having all the characteristics of God, but all the characteristics of a human being as well. And, and that's what we're celebrating when we're talking about the coming of Christ. This passage in John chapter 1 is telling us that God clothed himself with human flesh. He's God with skin. God with skin. God became a human being. He came to us that way so that you and I could come to him. So we now can have a relationship with him. It's as if God was saying, look, here, I'll show you. <laughs> I'll take you exactly for what you're looking for and longing for in life. I'm going to bring you there so that you can have a relationship with me. I've come to you to bring you to me. That's why we celebrate the birth of Christ and the incarnation of Christ as well. I want you to take your Bible. Let's, let's walk through John chapter 1. I'm going to read it right now. And, and as we read it, I want you to listen carefully to what John says as he explains why Christ came, why God consented to be clothed with human flesh and come to us, what God was trying to do. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God 
who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after Me ranks before Me, because He was before Me. For from His fullness we have all received, grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. This is the word of the Lord. In this passage, John is showing that Jesus came as God clothed with human flesh. He came so that we could go to God, so that we could come to Him. And He does this by showing how the coming of Jesus was a lot like the opening chapters of the book of Genesis. You remember what happens in Genesis chapter 1. Do you remember the words in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1? That's a very famous passage of Scripture. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Remember that? And then in the rest of chapter 1 and in chapter 2, this beautiful Hebrew poem that's describing the creation of the world, how God spoke everything into existence, how he spoke and light was created in the land and the seas and the atmosphere and the creatures and the plants that live on earth. And then finally it culminates with the creation of human beings who are made in the image of God. And all of this is described in chapter 1 and in chapter 2, the beginning. It, it's it, it's, a, it's a, a poem, a description of the creation and the fact that God spoke everything into existence and that he owns everything and that it all belongs to him and is accountable to him. John starts his gospel off and he uses almost the exact same words. Notice verse 1 in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word that was there at the creation the word that was spoken and brought everything into existence. The word that God uttered and spoke, that the message of God that called light and land and people and animals into existence. God created it all through his spoken word. And John is saying, I believe, using the similar terminology that God is recreating. It's, it's a new creation. That's what's happening here in this this prologue, these first 18 verses of John's Gospel. The coming of Christ, this God clothing himself with human flesh, his arrival in the world. John says he's the Word. He's the spoken Word. And he comes and he brings light. He was there with God, right beside God, sharing the qualities and attributes of God, fully God in every way, and yet distinct from God the Father, and yet equal to God the Father. This is something that that many folks struggle with. You know, we read these opening words, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And they say, how come it doesn't say, and and the God? It it makes it sound like it's God with a maybe lowercase g, like he's something less than the one true almighty God, God the Father. And the point is, is by not having that article, the the, there, The reason it's not there is to emphasize the quality, the fact that this Word is God, 
but he's distinct from God the Father. In other words, they're both God. They both have the attributes of God. They both have the qualities of God. They both do the things of God. But they're different from each other. They're distinct. And to differentiate that is why it's written this way. So it's not saying that the Word is somehow a creature or somehow inferior to God the Father. Exact, no, the exact opposite is true. He's on a par of equality with God the Father, this Word. And so he goes further and says, how do we know this? Because he was in the beginning. He's eternally existed like God the Father. He's not a creature that came to be after God. He's always been there. Always. Someone said it to me this way. In Isaiah we read, an everlasting father. If you're an everlasting father, that means you have an everlasting child. If you've always been a father, you've always had a child. Always had a son, an everlasting father. I was always had an everlasting son. You can't be everlasting father if you don't have a child that's always been there. And so that's, that's the point that they're trying to make is they're both God, but you're distinct from each other. He says the word was there and he was there in the beginning. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Again, emphasizing the creative power of the word as God, the creator. John goes further in writing about him. He says, in him was life. He was the source of life. He's where life comes from, this, this word that created everything that there is. And, not any, and, and in him was life and the life was the light of men. Scientists will tell you and scholars who study the scriptures will tell you that the fact that light was created first was absolutely essential for the rest of creation, especially life. You can't have life without light. Think about what life would be like if it could even exist, even if it could happen, if there were not a sun. S-U-N. The light of the sun. The warmth of the sun. Not too close to burn us up. Not too far away that we would shiver and freeze to death. But just right. All of that is the design of God. He goes further and he says, this light has come into the world. This word is light. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Some of your translations, the translations we use, some say the word, the light, the world did not understand the light. Others say did not overcome it. And it's like one's a struggle and one's a lack of, of understanding. And what, which is the right way to translate it. And, and the problem is, is that the word that John chooses here, it can be translated both ways. It just depends whether it's the, the active voice or the passive voice. And this is the case where it's the, it's the active voice and the idea is, is that it's supposed to be a struggle. There's opposition. And so in the original creation of Genesis chapter 1, it says that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And it's a picture of chaos. It's a picture of confusion. It's a picture of disorder. And what we're going to see happen in Genesis 1 and 2 is God bringing order to all of us and putting all the things together so they make sense, they fit together, they work together so there can be life. And here John is using a similar concept in saying that God spoke and His Word came into the world, His Son Jesus, co-equal with God in every way. He's come into this world as God's perfect message, perfect Word to us. And he's bringing light. Why? Because we're living in darkness. 
And you might not think you're living in the dark. Have you seen how confused things are in this world and how messed up things are in this world and how our leaders can't fix our problems and, and often we get mad at them and blame them? But can you see how, I've noticed how, how much trouble I have leading my own life, just me, let alone my family, let alone the church I serve, let alone the neighbors that I try to help. There's such a darkness in this world. It's because of our sin. We resist the light because we want to go our own way. The Bible calls that sin, and we all have it. You know, those of you that have to go to the eye doctor, they dilate your eyes. Remember what happens when that? <laughs> you know, go outside on a bright, sunny day without your sunglasses. Whoa, it just about knocks you down. You've sat in a movie theater and, and watched a film, and you've really enjoyed it, and so all of a sudden somebody flips the light on. And it's stunning. Again, your eyes aren't used to it. That's the struggle that people are facing when the light of God comes into the world through His Son, Jesus Christ. When God was clothed with human flesh coming into the world, there was a natural resistance to Him. The light was not overcome by the darkness. There was a struggle, but it was not overcome. Now, he's going to unpack what this means as he explains this new creation that's going on. There was a man, he's anchoring all of this in history now. He says, there's a man sent from God. His name was John. There's a lot of Johns here to remember, but uh, there's John the disciple who's writing this, and then he's talking about, in verse 6, he's talking about John the Baptist. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness, like a prophet in the Old Testament. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe in him. Not that everybody does believe, but just that there would be the opportunity for people to choose to put their faith in this light and follow it. The thing that's very interesting about the word believe in John's gospel, about a hundred times John uses the word believe and it's a verb every time, an action word. He never uses it as a noun, belief or faith as, an, as a noun. He always uses it as a verb, an action word. And I think part of the reason that John does this is to emphasize, emphasize the fact that believing is acting, believing is choosing, believing is saying, I'm going to rely on you. I'm choosing to make this commitment. Now, whether you believe that God stirs that up and makes it happen inside of you, or whether you believe it's your own action, either way, the human response is to act and to act by trusting. Act by believing, by relying upon the fact that the light has come into the world. We're going to come back to this idea in just a moment. John, it's John the Gospel writer, says about John the Baptist in verse 8, he was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, the one that's the fulfillment of all the promises given to Israel, the one who's the, the, the reality that casts the shadow that reflects the light. That true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Now what John is saying here, the gospel writer is saying, is that when this light, this word came into the world, people didn't know him. Now it's, it's not about that they were just ignorant it was, a, it was an active rejection of the knowledge. Now, you, you know this 
what happens. You know, when you're out of the loop, you ever, are you ever out of the loop in your family? Okay, have I kept people out of the loop in my family? You know, you, you, you make plans and you forget to tell your spouse. Your kids make plans and they forget to tell you. Oh, by the way, mom, I gotta have this big project done for school. We now, yes, and I see people elbowing others here today. We're hitting too close to home. I recognize that. There's, there's an ignorance that comes, there's a, there's a lack of knowledge that comes just from, by, I'm just ignorant, I just didn't know. If you'd have told me we could have done something about it, I could have been in the store, now the store's closed. Too bad, so sad, I guess you're getting an F, you know. But then there's an ignorance that's a willful ignorance. There's a willful choosing to not believe or to not accept as true to not know. And that's what we have going on here in verse 10. It's kind of like our, our, our politicians when they get some kind of report and they say, I don't believe it. Even though lots of other people have done careful research and they validated it and vetted it and, and double-checked it and verified it and they reject it. They say, I don't believe it. I, you know, I, I have the authority and position I can say I don't believe it, so I don't believe it, so it's not true. Well, no, the evidence is there that it is true. You just choose not to believe it and not know it. A lot of us do that kind of stuff. Some of us are, are still smoking. Some of us still struggle with other habits that we know are unhealthy. We're, we're not dealing with our blood pressure. We're not dealing with other health issues. The doctors told us, you need to lose a little weight. Yeah, I know I'm supposed to, but I don't really believe it. I know I should quit, but I don't really, I just don't think there's an urgency about it. I'm not sure I really do believe it. I'm not sure I really accept it as true. I don't really know it. There's a rejection of the knowledge. And that's what John is, is warning about in verse 10 is that this light came into the world and the struggle ensues with the darkness rejecting the light and not wanting to believe it. In 1915, there was a British ocean liner by the name of the Lusitania. Have you ever heard of that ship? And uh, this was in the early days of the First World War, and the Lusitania was sailing, and it was sunk by a German torpedo, fired by a German submarine. And uh, this ship sank, and within minutes of being struck by this tor torpedo, it began to take on water, and it began to sink. And there were nearly 2,000 people, I think, you know, 1,959 people on board the ship, and almost 1,200 of them drowned. And what was absolutely tragic was that there were life preservers, life vests, life jackets all over the ship, easily accessible. The problem was not that life jackets weren't available, they were available. The problem was is that people grabbed the life jackets and started putting them on wrong. They started putting heads through armholes. They put them on upside down so that their legs were going through the, the armholes and, and tying them around their, their chests like that. And, and other people were, were putting them on inappropriately. And the problem was is that when they wound up falling into the water, the life jacket, because of its design, would keep the head, if it's worn appropriately, would keep the head above water. But if you put the life jacket on upside down, what happens? It flips you over and your feet are saved and your head is drowning. Your head is underwater. And the, the, the writers of that time describing the scene of what happened is that the, 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 there were just all these bodies of drowned passengers covering the surface of the water because people had put the life jackets on wrong. 
Now, there were all these little signs by the life jackets that said, please put them on this way. This is the proper way. And, and you know, if, if you think all oh, those people were so stupid, how many of you pay attention on the airplane when they're doing the safety instructions? Put the mask down. Put yours on first. Then put your child's on. Make sure your seatbelts are on. Notice where the exits, the lights are here. You know, all that kind of stuff. You, do you pay it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a man there. His name was Charles Luray. He was a, uh, a bookseller who was a passenger on the ship. And he saw the people grabbing the life vests and putting them on wrong. And he tried to tell people, you're putting it all wrong. Here, let me show you how to do that. And the folks that he tried to help thought he was take, trying to take away their life jacket. And they ran away and drowned. The light comes into the world and he's trying to tell you your life jacket's on wrong and you're drowning. But nobody wants to listen. And they oppose him and they resist him and they reject him and they fight against him and they willfully choose to remain ignorant because they have the knowledge but they reject it. And John is saying that they're, they're struggling in this way and they're rejecting the light and the world did not know Him. In fact, he explains it even further when he says, He, the light, the Word, came to His own, literally His own property, His own place. He came to His own and His own people did not receive Him. I mean, the people that should have been looking for him, the people who who should have been like, yeah, show me how to put on the life vest, please. They they weren't. The the people who had the law of God, the people who had the promise of God through the prophets that a Messiah, a deliverer was coming, the people who had the worship at the temple, the sacrifices, who had all of these things, they had the truth, they should have been looking for the light, but they were living in darkness because they rejected the light. His own rejected him. But there is hope because in verse 12, would you read verse 12 with me? But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. In other words, there were people who did believe, who chose to believe what the light was saying. They accepted the knowledge that they didn't like that was an indictment on themselves, but they took it and they believed it and they put their trust in Him. And because of that, their lives were changed. They had a new relationship with Almighty God. This recreation has led to a recreation, a reconnection with Almighty God. Because now they could become His children. They weren't His children before. Well, I thought everybody was God's child. Well, everybody's God's creature. Every person was made by God and loved by God, longed for by God, but not everyone is God's child. Are you God's child? Do you belong to God? Do you, do you know that for certain? That you belong to God? I hope so. But this verse is telling us very clearly here that it's only the people who received Him, who welcomed Him, didn't reject Him, but they welcomed Him. 
And in welcoming him, they believed in his name. They put their faith in Jesus. They acted on this. And by the way, it's they kept on believing. It's a a life of faith, a life of dependence upon the Lord. They kept on believing in his name. He gave those people the right, the privilege, the opportunity, the power to become God's children. You see, this is the amazing thing, is in all of this, God clothed himself with human flesh and came to us so that we could come to him. How? By faith. By trusting in what he did. Receiving his life, his light, even though it embarrasses us, even though it exposes our sin, even though it shows us that we can't save ourselves, that we're lost, that we're separated from God, that we're full of shame and guilt without Him. They received His light. They believed in Him and they believed in what He had done to save them. And so then that's why He says they have the right to become God's children. They can be reconnected to Him. This is the new creation that He's making, the recreation of a new relationship with God. God is creating it. And then just to be really clear about this idea of being born into God's family and becoming God's children, he makes it very clear here in verse 13 that they were born not by blood, not by the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but it's through God. It's not human birth that we're talking about. It's not your parentage. It's not your heritage, your ethnicity, or your background, or the religious experience of your parents or anybody else. It's the fact that you put your faith in the Word who was clothed with human flesh, who is God's final message to us and has come into this world to bring us light so that we really could see ourselves and see who God is so that we could have a relationship with Him. You put your faith in Him. Now the thing that's fascinating in all this is that God is recreating this new relationship, this reconnection that we've lost because of our sin. He's recreating that. And that's what he's describing in these opening 13 verses of the prologue. But in verse 14, he shows us how he does it. And in verse 14, he just simply says this, the Word, this is how, the Word became flesh. The Word that's equal to God the Father. The Word that was the Creator. The the Word who has always existed eternally existed, that Word came into this world and was clothed with human flesh. The Word became flesh and He lived among us. He dwelt among us. Now, let me explain two very important things about this idea of the incarnation. When we talk about God clothing Himself with human flesh, let's make sure that we're we're accurate on this. We are not saying when Jesus was born, he traded his deity and took humanity and he's no longer divine. He's no longer God. We're not saying that. Okay? He's still fully God and fully man. All right? It's a mystery. Can't really explain it well, except that's what the Scripture is teaching, that somehow God was able to clothe himself with full humanity and remain fully God. The second thing that's important, this is another error, is that uh, the people historically have made about Christ and the incarnation. We're not saying that Jesus was fully God and only appeared, only looked like a man, but really wasn't. And so that's, it's, it's not like, you know, somehow he's camouflaged or cloaked and 
He really is God. He is really God, but he's really fully human too. And it's not just that he appeared like a spirit or a figure in some way, a phantom, that he looked like, a, like he was human. No, he was fully flesh and blood human while being fully God in all his deity and attributes as God. You, you, you can't separate one from the other in Christ. They, they came together in his conception and birth. It was a miracle. But again, that's what the virgin birth is all about that he would be clothed with human flesh and yet have no sinful nature as well. So all of this is what's going on when, when John writes and describes what happened at the birth of Christ, the significance, the why of Christmas. He's saying very simply here, the Word became flesh. It was clothed. You know, he became God with skin. And he dwelt among us. And what John is going to do is is just say here, here's the reason why God is creating something new and why we have this new relationship with him. It's because there's a new covenant relationship with him. There's a new foundation for why we can be accepted by God and reconciled to God, even though we are in the dark and we're sinful and we are rebellious to him. All that can be taken away and we can be reconciled to God. Why? Because now there's a new covenant with him. And so... He he describes it this way with things that would remind people of the old covenant that Israel had with God. The old relationship that was established at Mount Sinai that was God graciously coming and showing His love to the people of Israel by giving them a law to live by. And you might say, that doesn't sound like a lot of fun, a bunch of rules. But God was saying, look, I'm graciously giving you an opportunity to relate to me. And I'll keep my end of the bargain if you keep your end of the bargain. And what John is saying here as he describes the life of Christ is, you know what? No one was able to keep their end of the bargain. God had to assume all the conditions of the covenant and it becomes a unilateral covenant, meaning it all depends on what God does. And that's the big difference between what God did at Mount Sinai and what God did at Mount Calvary. He took all the responsibilities to fulfill the covenant through His life and through His death. Jesus did. It says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Here, let's, let's unpack this. The word dwelt there. Many of you probably have already heard this, but it's just beautiful to me. The word dwelt means to pitch a tent. It, it's, a, it's a word that's described in the, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament of, of, of the tabernacle in, in Exodus chapter 33 and 34. And it's, it's like he's saying, you know, God went camping. That sounds a little hokey, I know. You know, Morgan's paraphrase there. But, you know, God came and he pitched his tent among us. Eugene Peterson, in his his paraphrase called the message, he says, God moved into our neighborhood. That's a little slangy, I get that, but it's still that idea of he moved in next door to us. He came to live among us. He's right here with us. Remember Emmanuel? He clothed himself with human flesh and came to us. Why? So we could come to him. So it says that this word was clothed with flesh and he dwelt among us and it was like him pitching a tent. The tent in the Old Testament was the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, the portable tent temple that God had called Moses to build so that the presence of God would always be with the people of Israel wherever they wandered through the desert and wherever they were at in the promised land. And so John is using, to describe the coming of Christ, he's using the same words to describe Moses pitching the tent 
for the dwelling place of God at the temple where people could meet God and connect with him. And not only does it say that he pitched his tent among us, he came and lived among us, but John says we've seen his glory. When Moses had built that, te- that uh, tent temple, the tabernacle, when he had built that, and it was all constructed according to plan, it was dedicated and, and offered to God in the appropriate ways, God's glory came down upon that tent and filled it up. It was so bright that the people who were serving there couldn't even go in because the light was so intense and so bright and blinding. And it was the glory of God that was filling that tent. The presence of God filling that tent. And John is saying, when Jesus came into this world, it was like God pitched His tent among us and it was full of His glory. His powerful, majestic, brilliant presence was in the life of Christ. Now, what this doesn't mean that Jesus walked around everywhere with a big halo, you know, glowing in the dark. You know, hey, I'm Jesus. Oh, I couldn't quite tell, you know. Kind of bright there. Lord, can you turn it down a little bit? I mean, it's time for bed. You know, it wasn't like that. Like the artists represent, you know, the rays coming out of his head or the little circle that's glowing. It wasn't like that. John's talking about the miracles that Jesus performed. The the signs. They revealed his deity. They revealed that he was the one who had come to set the people free, to be the fulfillment of all the promises God had made to Israel. And so in John's gospel, there are all these miracles that take place. In fact, in John chapter 2, when Jesus turns the water into wine at the wedding there at Canaan, John says this is the first of his signs where he showed his glory. So it's certainly that. All along the way, Jesus is, is letting out the glory of God, and people are seeing it through the miracles that he's doing, the things that he's teaching. But there's something even bigger that Jesus says reveals his glory. There was an episode in John chapter 12 where it says that these fellows from a Greek background, they're looking for Jesus, and they, and they want to interview him. They're a bunch of fanboys, and they, they're looking for Jesus, the celebrity, and they want to talk to him and find out more about him and all of that. And when they arrive... Jesus kind of squelches their, their, you know, going gaga over him and craziness over him. And he says, I want you to really know who I am and what I'm really doing. And he uses this analogy. He says, you know what? I'm like a grain of wheat. This kernel of wheat that's got to get buried into the ground. And unless that kernel of wheat dies, it stays all alone. But if it's buried in the ground and it dies, it grows. It sprouts. It bears fruit. And John says Jesus was talking about his glory. He's talking about his death, his burial, and his resurrection. You don't believe that? Last night of Jesus' life, they've just had their last supper, and they're praying. Jesus is praying, and as he prays to the Father, he just simply says, my hour has come. Glorify me. He's talking about the cross, Mount Calvary. He's talking about his death for our sins. He's talking about his suffering and humiliation and sacrifice on our behalf so we could be forgiven and accepted by God. It's the new covenant. We're going to remember that in just a few moments when we take communion together.
But what John is trying to say here is that Jesus came and through this tent tabernacle and through the glory of God and through His death, He's going to show us his, this, his, the fullness of His grace and His truth. Full of grace and truth as He says there in verse 14. And those are the words that Yahweh, the God of Israel, would say talking about Him loving the people of Israel. I am full of grace. And He, he would say loving kindness. My love for you and my graciousness to you never ends. And it's always true. You can always count on it and rely on it. He's establishing a new covenant and it all depends on what Jesus has done and showing us His glory by dying for us on the cross and rising from the dead. That's the basis of us being able to become the children of God and be reconnected to God and be reunited to Him and become new creations in Christ. In verse 15, John, the gospel writer, anchors everything that he's saying in the historical fact and presence of John's, John the Baptist's life and ministry. John bore witness about him and cried out, this is he whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And then John, the gospel writer, continues, for from his fullness, that grace and truth that he was just talking about, we've all received grace for grace. What Moses did on Mount Sinai in giving the law, God was very gracious there. But it was a grace that fell short because of our human sin and our, in, and our inability to keep the law. It fell short not because of God, but fell short because of us. We couldn't keep the law. But God has done something different with Jesus. He has fulfilled the law. He's given us a greater grace. For, in verse 17, he explains, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The difference between Jesus and Moses is described in verse 18. No one has ever seen God, but the only God who is in the Father's side, He has made Him known. Moses, when he was on top of Mount Sinai, asked God, while he's getting the Ten Commandments and the plans for the tabernacle, he says, God, I want to see your glory. Just show me your glory. And God says, if I show you my glory, it would knock you dead. No, I'm not going to show you my glory. But I will do this. He takes Moses, puts him in this gigantic crack in the side of the mountain, this little crevice, covers it up with his hand, and walks by and as he's past Moses, he removes his hand, and Moses can peek out very gingerly and carefully. Well, what am I looking at? And he sees God's back, and it's glorious, and he lives. But he never saw God face to face. Verse 18 is telling us is that Jesus has seen the Father face to face. When it talks about in the earlier verses, the only begotten of the Father, as it talks about in verse 18, the only God, the one and only God, the only Son in verse 14 it says, and the only God in verse 18. It's that old English word that we use in the King James Version that says the only begotten of the Father. And it sounds like somebody that was born, you know, or created. And it really is the idea of a unique one of a kind person, a special son. Like, like Isaac, Abraham had many sons, but Isaac was the special son, the favorite son, the, the one that he delighted in, the one-of-a-kind son of the heir of the promise. 
Jesus Christ is the one-of-a-kind, unique, special Son of God. You and I can become children of God, but only Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He's that unique, one-of-a-kind Son of God. He is in the presence of the Father. When it says that He is at the Father's side, another way to paraphrase that, He's like sitting on the Father's lap. He has that face-to-face relationship with Him. You see, what makes all this possible, this is the greatest thing that becomes available to us because Jesus was clothed with skin. Because God clothed himself with humanity. The greatest thing that happens is that you and I can have a divine encounter. We can see God face to face and have a relationship with him. We can experience God's love personally because God speaks through the language of humanity and through the language of human flesh. We can have his peace because he's come to comfort us. We can have his forgiveness because he's come to restore us and reconcile us. We can have all of these things because God clothed himself with human flesh and came to us. Now we can come to him. No one has ever seen God the Father. Not even Moses, the greatest of all the Jews. But the one who is the one and only Son of God, Jesus, the Word, who became flesh, He has seen the Father. And if you've seen Him, and if you know Him, then you see and know the Father personally. You think, how would I see God? Because I can't even see Jesus. That was 2,000 years ago. You see Him on the pages of this book. You see him in the words of Scripture. You see the story of his life. You hear his words. You see what he does. It's an accurate, factual representation, record of what Christ has done. And you and I can know God personally in that way. In fact, it says that the one who is the one and only Son of God, he has made the Father known. Literally, he has declared the Father. He has exegeted the Father. He has narrated the Father. He has expounded the Father Explain the Father in such a way that you and I could know Him personally. You want to know God? You need to know Jesus. You need to trust in Him. Because Jesus is the God who clothed Himself with human flesh and came to us so now we can come to God. How? Through faith. Through trusting in Him. And I urge you, if you've never done that, if you've never put your trust in Christ, to do that today. If you have trusted in Christ, then understand that you knowing God and being loved by God and accepted by God and approved by God, it all depends on what Christ has already done. You become God's child, not because you're a good Christian. You become God's child because Christ died for you. You're forgiven of your sins, not because you've worked them off somehow and paid your debt, because you can't do that. It's because Christ paid the debt for you. He made it possible because he was clothed with human flesh and went to the cross and glorified God through his death and showed what God is really like as a God that humbly serves and sacrifices to save us. You can have a relationship with God and you can live in that relationship with God every day because Christ saw God face to face and now you can see him face to face too. Let me pray with you, and then we'll celebrate communion together. Father, thank you. Thank you that we could be together today. Thank you that uh, John wrote all of this. It's, It's a deep, profound passage, and it just reminds us, reminds us that we're lost and we're in the dark. 
We're alienated from you and we're not your children. We're empty and estranged from you. And it's only when we put our trust in Christ that we truly can come back to you. Thank you for coming to us. Thank you for clothing yourself with flesh so that we can now come to you. Thank you, Jesus, for sacrificing yourself on that cross that we might be set free and become your children. I ask and pray these things in Jesus' name.